From PowerlineBlog.com and produced by Ricochet.com, this is The Powerline Show with your host, Steve Hayward. Well, hi, everybody, and welcome to episode 187. This episode is going to change up the format quite a bit. I do have a guest. But instead of the usual format where I uh, ask the guest questions, we're going to flip it around, and my guest is going to interview me for a change. It's a little bit like the episode I did a few months ago with Jack Butler, uh, where we tried to cross the streams between an aging baby boomer, which is me, and Jack Butler, who is, what, Gen X, I guess. Uh, And in this particular case, uh, my guest is a young fellow named Zachary Wood. Uh, Now, some of you might recognize the name if you follow some of these higher education controversies. I first took notice of Zach Wood, I don't know, three, four years ago, when I heard the story out of Williams College, where Zach Wood had started, as an undergraduate at Williams, Zach had started a program that he called Uncomfortable Learning. And he was inviting speakers, mostly conservative speakers, uh, including Christina Hoff Summers, Charles Murray, John Christie, uh, David French, and others and ran into a lot of trouble uh, because Williams is a pretty liberal, liberal arts college. Uh, and Zach, by the way, himself is um, a Democrat, a uh, you know moderate liberal, I guess. I haven't really cross-examined him on exactly where he might fit on the ideological spectrum. Uh, but, but as my experience has been with uh, progressive students at Berkeley, he wants to hear something different. A lot of progressive students at college campuses actually want to hear something different. They're tired of the uniformity of things. Uh, so, uh, Zach ran into a lot of trouble with the administration trying to invite these heterodox conservative speakers. And in fact, he uh, has an article about um, how he was dressed down by the president of Williams College up at uh, the National Association of Scholars a couple weeks ago. I've linked to the piece in the show notes. Uh, since graduating from Williams, Zach has already started to make a mark in the world. He was a Robert Bartley Fellow at the editorial page at the Wall Street Journal. He's been an assistant curator for TED, the, you know, the people who do all those fancy talks in the round. He's also a former columnist and assistant opinion editor for The Guardian. Now, he's written for The New York Times, The Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, and he's uh, shortly planning to take the LSAT and head off to law school before very much longer. I want to add that he's also joined the board of directors of Heterodox Academy, uh, which, of course, uh, is uh, founded by uh, my friend um, Jonathan Haidt, the distinguished social psychologist. In any event, Zach was, uh, and I were talking recently, and he talked about how he's worried about not just free speech broadly, but you know, freedom of the press and the news media world. And he said he'd like to start doing some interviews and, and maybe building a little media outlet of his own. Uh, and so I said, sure, I'd love to chat with you, you know, on the record about these things. Uh, but he doesn't have a platform up and running yet. And I said, well, how about this? I do. I've got this podcast for Powerline. Why don't we just post our conversation there? And so that's what we've done here today. And so without further ado, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Zach Wood. And for a change, you're going to listen to me answering questions instead of the other way around. Okay, Zach, finally we have connected and I'm going to just toss it over to you straight away without further delay. Fantastic. Steve, thank you for doing this. I've been looking forward to it. Sure. So let's let's dive right in. Um, in today's world, polarized, deeply divided, COVID nineteen wreaking havoc, mismanagement, undermanagement, 
too much information coming at us in who knows how many ways. Yet we need, there are things we need to know every day. There are things we need to know about safety, about economic consequences. What role do you see the, the free press, our press, playing in that? And why is a free press today so important? Yeah, well, I guess uh, I'm sort of tempted to joke off the bat because I'm like that in my more than old age uh, that, you know, what I need to know every day is who has toilet paper for sale. <laughs> but <laughs> but no, I mean, more seriously. Uh, so here's the problem is um, – uh, the problem is we've suffered from information overload for quite a while now, right? There's there's more things happening in the modern world. There's right. more there are more news media outlets. We're simply overwhelmed with information, and you don't know what to trust or how to trust it. Uh, and so, I mean, I really can't do any better than say, uh, you know, the news media needs to do the best they can, and often that is badly, right? I mean, I, I think you can go back to you know previous large scale events, say World War II. Um, uh, when, you know, the government actually did exercise some censorship. That was certainly true in World War I, uh, less so in World War II, but there was always a problem of misinformation and things leaking out. Um, uh, you know, you used to have those posters that would say in World War II, loose lips sink ships. Because, <laughs> uh, you know, you're worried about spies. But, you know, if you printed something in the paper about, uh, you know, oh, I was in the bar the other day and somebody said their son is in uh, this army division that's just shipped out to Tunisia or something. Well, you know, that's that would be a, a, a you know valuable information to an enemy. And they don't, that's why they try to keep the news kind of planned. OK, that's wartime, which is uh, an extreme circumstance. Well, now what, what happening here is, you know, there's uh, there's so much, uh, you know, um, th the big problem now is uh, the things we don't know. Uh, right. Okay. Our, our data is still really bad. Uh, we have uh, conflicting claims about what treatments are effective and aren't right. effective, and and, and and the phony things being said too, right? And then you layer on that the uh, sort of don't, conspiracy don't theories bleach, and stuff. By the way, <laughs> yeah, forever right. listening. <laughs> right. Although I think once again, I think that was you know the uh, I think the White House media and the people who like to catch up Trump and his clumsiness took that a little further than was meant. I mean, anyway, um, uh, and and people don't trust the media. That's the other problem today is that uh, you know uh, public uh, regard for the media is at uh, I think maybe an all time low. Is it? But is if you talk about. I think it may be an all-time low, but it's about half of what Trump's approval rating is, right. which yeah. – think about that for a minute, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, so I don't know. If you're – you know, uh, one thing I noticed – I'm sorry I'm going on too long. I don't no, no, have no, a bunch of yeah, questions. This is good stuff. But, you know, I, I try to follow not so much the conventional news media – uh, well, I try to follow as much as I can, but and you can't, of course. But one of the things I know is that the uh, what's called in the sciences and social sciences, the preprint world is on fire right now. What is preprint world? A lot of listeners won't know what that means. It's uh, articles that have been submitted to uh, a reputable journal, and that and that hasn't stuff. been academic. What's that? This is in the yeah, academic ac world. Yeah, academic and professional journals. So okay. it can be some okay. medical journals okay. and. It's articles that the editors think are are worthy of review and possible final publication, uh, and you know the peer review process is slow and has its own defects. And so you you post it up online in what they call the preprint pages, and there are I think I've lost count, but a couple of weeks ago I think we were up to five thousand articles in the sort of preprint uh, domain online about uh, COVID nineteen. You know all Just kinds of angles of it, right? That's a right. That's a good right. Bit. 
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, there we are. Uh, the, the modern internet world, the 24-7 news cycle, Twitter, all the rest makes it possible to simply flood the world right. uh, with information and perspectives. And, you know, how do you sort that out? Not easy. Absolutely. And so do you think, if we're thinking about the the role that journalists play, that reporters play, what are strong reporters, effective reporters, as you see it, what are, what are they doing uh, these days? Not ineffective reporters, not r- reporters who are good, who are doing their job well. What are they? What are they doing these days? Yeah, so I want to give a general answer to that that applies to all kinds of journalism. Um, so I think the best journalists are people who have a field of expertise in the subject they're covering. So in other words. You know, on medical issues, health issues, I would like to have a reporter who has some background in public health or actually in medicine. And, you know, the networks usually have a doctor, uh, you know, it's with Sanjay Gupta for CNN. And uh, I forget the fellow NBC has. NBC's had a doctor as part of their new staff going back 30, 40 years now, at least. Uh, and, and you know, you think about uh, uh, the newspapers and networks. I mean, there's a reason you have a business page, the New York Times, and a lot of the business writers have some real business experience. Uh, too often, I think the problem in journalism is people go to journalism school, which I understand that's a pathway, uh, but I actually think that's a mistake because you learn how to write about the news, but you don't learn anything about the substance of what you're covering. Uh, if, if I had a magic wand and designed a journalism program, I would require all journalism programs to be dual degree programs. In other words, if you're going to go to Columbia, you get a degree in journalism with uh, Nick Lemon and all the guys who run the place the people who run the place. And you'd be required to take a, a second degree in economics or history or anthropology or public health. Uh, and then you develop a real specialty and your reporting is much more in depth. So you think about political reporters. A lot of them are just people interested in politics. And you know, that guy who worked for Obama, Ben Rhodes, he was right when he said so many reporters don't know anything. They don't know any history. And so we can spoon feed them stuff. Um, you know, my model political reporter, who's now really kind of semi-retired, is Michael Barone, uh, you know, who was a political practitioner and then became a journalist and then started doing every two years the almanac of American politics. And he's very much a numbers guy. But, you know, you ask him about, uh, uh, you know, a congressional race in Tennessee, and he will tell you about what congress- congressional races in that part of Tennessee were like back in the 1930s. And so that's someone who brings a real depth to uh, the subject. Uh, and likewise, I think uh, right now, I'm interested in reading a journalist who knows something about the Spanish flu of 1918 <laughs> or, who, or who covered the SARS epidemic, uh, 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 you know, the, the SARS virus wasn't quite academic back in 2003. And, you know, we don't have very many of those. And I think that's a problem. So, we're, so you're saying we historical sensibility is really important right now and, uh, and knowledge of history is important right now. I think that'd be the number one thing, yeah. But but if you're going to cover business, it would yeah. be good if you study business or study yeah, yeah. organizational theory, study economics. I don't. Right? I don't. I'm cert- certainly not opposed to that idea. I don't know that I'd, I. I I feel it should be a requirement or even. I mean, I think it it could be extremely beneficial if if anyone who wants to explore any particular subject has more knowledge of it or has studied it more. I mean, I guess in some sense, you know, I think of. When I think of good reporters, strong reporters, reporters I admire, I think of reporters who ask tough questions, good questions, particularly questions of of uh, of, of of the president, people who yeah. and and 
make an effort to get the facts, the as you know, as a a to provide the public with a fuller, more complete, never complete, but closer to complete understanding of the issues of the day. How how valuable is it in in your view right now that we have reporters in White House briefings who are willing to directly challenge the president of the United States? Well, I think I think it's fine. I think it's good. Uh, one thing I observe about the White House press corps is that they tend to be that uh, they tend to be kind of a herd mentality. There's a few exceptions to that in the White House press corps that uh, some of whom I know personally, like Deborah Saunders of the Las Vegas Review Journal. Um, and so, you know, the, the questions tend to be all from the same point of view. Um, and there, like I say, now and then there's some departures in this. Uh, the other thing is, uh, although it's good to uh, make a, a president or a president's press secretary defend themselves and explain their point of view, you won't really get, I mean, you may get some facts, but mostly what you get is their their spin, their understanding of things or the message they want sure. to convey. <laughs> sure. uh, and so, you know, so a really good reporter will right. dig and find other sources, not just, uh, you know, a lot of journalism is kind of lazy, I think, because you'll say the president said X and then they call up somebody and what do you think? And the, they usually look for somebody who will say not X because it gives you a quote unquote balanced story. Um, and I say journalists are lazy. I mean, I've experienced this firsthand myself. There's an awful lot of what I think uh, I like to call ventriloquist journalism, which is, uh, you know, I, I was told about this when I was a you know, young student, you know, as undergraduate more than 40 years ago, writing news pieces for my college paper. And uh, I was warned about this, that, you know, the really good reporters, not really good, I mean, skillful um, but, you know, they'll often determine what they think the storyline is, and they will have an outline of the story in mind, and they're up against a deadline. The deadline might be three hours away. So they think, well, you know, what would make this story good is if I could have somebody who expresses a particular point of view. And so they'll call you up, and they will uh, – and I've experienced – I've been through this. They'll ask you the same question over and over again until you give them the quote they're looking for. Uh, this is what makes people cynical about um, about reporters. And – uh, I know. I mean, I could tell some war stories. I, I think I won't. But you know, I, I recognized a couple times when a reporter was hoping I would say a particular thing that would fit well in a story, and I wouldn't give it to him, and and then I wouldn't be quoted. And of course, a good rule in politics or anything really is uh, you can't get in trouble if you're not quoted. <laughs> right. And and I wasn't the subject of the story. They weren't trying to make me look bad, but they were wanting to use my perspective to. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation? where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 
you know, make somebody else look bad or make a controversy spin out a certain way. But there's an awful lot of that that goes on because um, especially journalists at the elite level, you know, they have their own reputations. They're kind of celebrities themselves now. Um, and um, uh, so, you know, that that's a difficulty. I mean, there's a lot of reporters I respect, many of them actually, you know, with quite different viewpoints than I have. Um, uh, but it's a, uh, it's a very tricky, tricky landscape. It is. I'm th- I mean, I'm thinking about what you said in terms of, you know, you, you, you ask the same, qu- same question in different ways until you get something that you're looking for. What, I guess if, if we're, I mean, if we're thinking about what everybody's concerned about today, right? The, the virus, yeah. the spread of the virus, how do we, you know, uh, bring it under control, keep it under control, do the things necessary so that, as soon as possible, people can begin to uh, to, to realize some sense of normalcy. When you're when you're when you're a reporter in today's climate, and you're you're dealing with our current president, you you get you got to be tough. You you've, sometimes you got to ask the same question over again, especially when he's evasive and when he's disparaging. And so I guess if, if this, this, how do you, cause I get what you're saying about a herd mentality, but so how do you balance that with or weigh that against um, the adversarial postures he takes towards the press from the jump? Yeah. You know, right, and then right, sustains yeah. and aggresses and aggresses. Right. Well, that, that's, you know, Trump's going to Trump, right? That's just, that's just what we know about him. Um, uh, and, and of course that drama is always fun. Uh, fair enough. Uh, this particular moment, things are changing moment by moment, right? You know, are we, how many tests are we doing? How many, how soon can we get to half a million a week? And, you know, yesterday you have one answer today will be another one. Um, and so you have to, so I think you have to stay after those things, but after a while, I think the public tends to lose track. I don't know. I, I kind of lose track of things. Um, and I'm, I'm a real news junkie, right? right. Uh, and if I'm losing right. track of things, imagine what somebody who's not a news junkie is. Um, I, I will just offer this observation. Um, you know, I I watch the evening network news. I usually watch NBC because I kind of find Lauren. Uh, what's his name? Um, oh shoot, um, who, what? I'm like Lester Holt. Oh, Lester. Holt. I, was say, I was gonna say Lawrence. Somebody knew that was Lester Holt. I find him sort of you know easy to listen right. to. I saw him at the uh, airport and- once. I should have said hello. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think he's a nice guy. That's what I hear. Anyway, uh, I practically st- – and I, I've been a network news junkie for a very, very long time. Um, and I joke sometimes with my conservative friends, well, it's opposition research, right? You <laughs> want to know what the major media is. But more seriously, I like to see how they're presenting things. And I practically stopped watching, mostly because there's not that much news being reported. Uh, every night, the bulk of the broadcast – there'll be a little bit of news, but the bulk of the broadcast are what I call human interest stories – uh, you know, nurses uh, from the emergency room and doctors and people who've recovered and people who've lost their businesses or out of a job. And they're all, you know, terrific human interest stories. Right. Uh, but they're not actually hard news. Um, I really, uh, I, I think, by the way, that network news has been trending that way for a while now. I don't think it just happened now. But now that you have this uh, this story that is the story that you can spend almost the entire broadcast on every night, we're getting lots of human interest stuff. And I find it very unsatisfying. My local news channel, which has uh, almost no budget because it's I'm out in this little tiny county out here in California. What channel? And they're on. I'm just well, it's uh, it's uh, KSBY uh, here in San Luis Obispo, California, and you know the whole county is only half a million people. 
They're the only TV station in the county. And, you know, they have a tiny skeleton crew. The, all the reporters are young people right out of college. Who, it's their first television broadcast job. And they're all pretty good, but you can tell that they're new at it. And they're giving me more news every night. You know, they come on and say, we've had three new cases today or five or whatever it is. Here's where they are. Here's how many people are in the hospital. Here's how many have recovered. Here's what the county director of public health said today of the state of things and you know, a timeline for reopening the county. And, they, you know, they give you real information that, right. by the way, is relevant to you. So that's another general point I should have made at the beginning is local news is much more meaningful to people than national news. Uh, and especially right now, I think. Um because you're saying that you get yeah. more hard news. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think Even you know, if people you hear... have an appetite for for certain kinds of stories. I mean, people yeah. are looking for something positive these days. I mean, I completely agree with what you're saying that in terms of the value of of getting the facts and getting the, the critical information and, and the data out there uh, that's essential. But I mean, we I mean we know this. People people it's the same reason why people like presidential debates, the same reason why, you know, people like not just entertainment. I don't want to call it entertainment, um, but you know, people want to feel good. You know what I mean? People don't want to feel sad and depressed and down all the time. And I'm not saying I'm not saying here that oh, we should just tell a bunch of feel good stories so that people have a distorted sense of reality and think things are better than they are. But I guess I'm saying, how do you? Not that there's one way to do this, but I mean, those positive stories matter right now. No, I mean, how do you? What's the what's the balance, right? Because I think you should tell some of those. I think I think they're important. Are those the kind of yeah, uplifting well, side of things? Right. Actually, the, well, the, you know, the I sort of summarized the NBC news coverage perhaps a little too hastily. I mean, they it's not just uh, you know stories of people recovering, and some of the stories of doctors and nurses on the front lines are pretty harrowing about how difficult it's been in some places. So sure. you know, it's a mix of things. Um, Let's see. Uh, I do think, uh, you know, there. I guess I'll offer two thoughts about this that's very difficult for the media. But but one is, you know, the old cliche is if it bleeds, it leads. Or the converse is uh, you never see a headline that airplane lands safely, right? <laughs> you, only, you only read about plane crashes, right? Or, you know, Can accidents. I steal that? Do I have permission to steal that? That's a good line. You never see oh, you, oh, that has been around forever. You Absolutely. never see a head, What is it? You never see a headline about says, an plane lands safely, right? <laughs> That's um, good. That's, I mean, you did. You, there are some exceptions. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I, I could go on a while about this, but for a while in the 1990s and into the 2000s, uh, it was often front page news that the crime rate had fallen another 5% last year, uh, both nationally and especially in hard hit cities like New York or Baltimore or Chicago. So that's really good news. And it got, as I say, front page coverage, but often because the mayors uh, or governors would would announce this good news and make it a news story, whereas other kinds of good news just get ignored by the media, such as, <laughs> for example, the, the one I've worked on for years is environmental trends. Um, you know, I grew up in L.A. when the smog was really awful, and it's night and day different today. And, you know, the, the improving air quality over the years very seldom got mentioned, even by the Los Angeles Times, which had a beat reporter covering it all the time. So anyway, um, the other thing, though, is um, – and this is a broader problem in the media. You know, I mentioned earlier that you know, the media's approval rating is really low. M maybe I shouldn't single out the media specifically because uh, public esteem, public trust for lots of large institutions has been falling for years across the board. Certainly. You know, the Catholic Church. Yeah. Yeah. Um, about the only institutions that have not collapsed are the military – 
Right. Uh, and because they're pretty good at what they do. And that's the point. Is, um, Fortunately, thankfully. Yeah. Well, uh, right. Uh, it's <laughs> whether there's civilian uh, command, uh, their civilian controllers have made the right decisions is a different subject. But when you when you tell our military to go kill people and break things, they do it really well. Um, right. <laughs> so here's the problem is. Uh, um, it is uh, so public esteem for government in general has fallen by you know fifty percent from say nineteen sixty two today. It's really startling, um, and that's true around the world. By the way, it's true in European countries, and th- this is a longer subject than just the news media. But part of the problem here is uh, you say people want to. I'm not sure how you put it, but what I was taking from you was is that people want to think somebody's got something in hand. And even if they don't have things in hand, at least that you have some confidence that they're doing their best. Right. Uh, and, you know, we don't we don't have that sense anymore about our government, about our churches, about our news media, uh, about certain professions. Uh, you know, lawyers and used car salesmen have always been, <laughs> you know, sneered at. But um, uh, and, you know, the medical profession, I mean, I, I think people uh, have high esteem for doctors but boy, our healthcare system is not very popular, right? Because of all the difficulties of health insurance yes. and stuff. Yes. So, um, so in other words, in other words, the media is, uh, you know, regardless what you think about, you know, media biases and ideology, or whatever, they're they're in a very tough uh, no win situation. I agree. I mean, I think, I think we attention spans are getting shorter too, which is which yes. is which is a part of it, and and the effect that social media has on how certain things get <laughs> amplified versus others and who gets jumped on and in what way and how and for how long. And um, it, it changes yeah, the uh, landscape. Right. Let me check my Twitter thread on that just now. No, I'm <laughs> kidding. <laughs> <laughs> well, although, you know, I think uh, once again, you should take a long, you know, you're a young guy, you should take a long-term view of this, <laughs> which is that um, the, you know, the, the, uh, the new frontier of each generation of media has made the problem worse. And so it didn't start just with social media. And I'll give you an example of what I mean. Um, You know, I'm old enough to remember evening newspapers, you know, not just morning newspapers, but evening newspapers that were profitable. And, you you know, you'd want to read the, I, I, I was a news junkie from when I was a little kid and, I would get the evening newspaper off the front lawn first at five o'clock and you read about what happened during the day, how the stock market closed and so forth. But that's about the time the uh, network broadcasts came in. I mean, they've been around for a little while, but it's the early 60s. The TV networks went to half an hour. And and then local stations started beefing up their news. And so evening newspapers died starting in the late 60s and into the 70s uh, because TV took it over. Okay. Uh, but then something else happened. The TV news started, um, and it, maybe it was uh, – you might even blame remote controls. You know, my, my standard joke is when I grew up and you want to change a channel, you had to get up out of your chair and walk across the room, right? <laughs> but, you know, you only had three channels, so it didn't matter much, right? Um, your captive audience. And, you know, now we have five million channels, whatever it is, uh, streaming service. Uh, but here's a fact for you that's kind of interesting. Uh between the years 1968 and 1988. So that's a while ago now. But in 1968, in the presidential race, you had a three-way race with Nixon, Humphrey, and George Wallace. And on the evening broadcast, uh, about half the broadcast every night would be about the presidential campaign. And the average soundbite from the candidates, in other words, a clip from a speech, was 45 seconds long. 
Well, 45 seconds, you know, as you know, that's an eternity today. <laughs> but already by 1980, so you get a good chunk of a speech from Nixon or Humphrey or somebody saying something. Um, and by 1988, just 20 years later, the average soundbite from a candidate's speech was only eight seconds long. Um, and I think that, you know, that's had an effect on our political candidates. They understand that if you're trying to get on the evening news, you, 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 you spin out sound bites right. instead of making arguments. Uh, and uh, so that, you know, that's well before the internet starts, uh, and, uh, and, you know, ca- the cable news and, and all the rest. And so now we have our little devices and we get, you know, the instant dopamine hit from checking our Twitter feed and Facebook posts and, Oh, right. There we are. On thinking in, in terms of uh, presidents and, and politicians, public figures, but especially elected officials. Let's just let's even let's just focus it on presidents. Who uh, who do you think? Again, we can we can limit it to Republican presidents in the first instance. Who should could uh, might you hope? Donald Trump would learn from in terms of dealing with the press, engaging with the media? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think the two best at it were uh, Dwight Eisenhower, who was unappreciated at the time and for a long time afterwards. And then, of course, Ronald Reagan. Um, He was good. And, you know, Reagan, uh, of course, there is a parallel between Reagan and Trump. They both come to, well, Reagan explicitly from show business and Trump partially from show business, right? Uh, I think it's not a, a, an original insight that a lot of Trump's instincts from being such a showman, both as in the business sense, but also on The Apprentice, explains a lot about the guy. Um, uh, but the, the personalities are different, and that's where the difference comes in. You know, Reagan was a very secure guy. <laughs> The news media really bothered him. I mean, he wrote in his diary and he would tell people how angry he was at news media coverage and what he thought was unfair or ideological coverage. And I do know that at least on one occasion, he phoned Dan Rather, who was then the anchor of CBS News, to complain about CBS News coverage. Directly. But he, Reagan phoned Directly, him right. Called him up on the phone one night after the broadcast That's was over. And, you know, Usually the president yeah. doesn't do that himself. No, that's right. Well, the difference here is Trump does it every day, in, right. you know, oh, yeah, out right. in front of everybody. Publicly. Right. <laughs> right? Because, yeah. uh, you know, one of the things about Reagan's discipline was is that he never wanted to give the media the satisfaction that they were getting oh. under his skin or that they bothered him. Right. Um, in fact, the only time he would complain publicly about the media was never about himself. It's when he thought they were taking shots at uh, the first lady, Nancy, that were unfair. He, he would then chastise the media publicly because he thought that was out of bounds. And that's a, a different matter. I respect but, that. I respect. Yeah, but he's also That's very good. artful That's in handling good. the media. Yeah, uh, and 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 Eisenhower was also uh, a skillful at handling the media. Now, the other parallel to Trump's testiness, um, I think, would be Richard Nixon. Although that, you know, that's a more complicated situation because, you know, it, it did ultimately end in Watergate, <laughs> right? Uh, but even before that, he, he, you know, he thought the media were not. But of course, Lyndon Johnson, you mentioned Republican presidents, but, uh, and, you know, you, I know you, 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 um, you know, you're, you're uh, you, you worry that Trump is trying to intimidate the media or maybe successfully I, so. Yeah, right. I, it bothers me. Right. It, bother, it bothers me that he, sure. he does not, it, it really bothers me that he does not yeah. respect the press that he will intentionally publicly degrade people, particularly women. It's just, it's a spe- I mean, yeah, he gets into it with Jim Acosta all the time. Um, and <laughs> other reporters. He gets into it with everybody and it is his MO, but yeah. he targets women with the, you know, it, it, nasty. And I mean, you know, he, it bothers me because it's not okay. Yeah. And he gets away with it. 
and you know it sets precedents and norms, and I don't like it. Well, I don't know if he does. Well, we can come back to that maybe about whether he gets away with it or not. Because, um, um, well, maybe we'll come back to that. I'll just bring up for you know again something I know from historical research is because I was a little kid at the time, but Lyndon Johnson was so angry at press coverage over especially the Vietnam War uh, that he mucked around talking about trying to yank uh, the FCC licenses from the broadcast networks. Really. Oh you know, yeah. Didn't, so uh, didn't, now he didn't he didn't complain in public the way Trump does. Instead, he was thinking about playing hardball behind the scenes. And there's a long record of that kind of thing. Didn't Nixon do that with it? Was it Reston at the New York Times? Uh, I forget what he thought about Reston. I know he uh, he would fulminate a lot and sometimes very ugly ways, as we know from the tapes about you know having the IRS audit. Uh, especially, he'd say you know these Jewish editors of the New York Times. You know he uh, right. You know what I'm thinking uh, of as you say that. I'm thinking of the scene it was the movie called The Post. It was the movie about how the Washington Post covered him um, with Meryl Streep. Um, and there's a scene where Nixon's like you know hand is slamming against the, a finger slamming against the table, and he's like you know. Is that clear? Do you understand? You will be fired. Right. And I don't know who he's talking to, but he's basically saying, you know, James Reston, you know, ax him. I don't want to see him in the press room anymore. This reporter don't want to see him anymore. And then the uh, and they're told, you know, if you keep doing this, he will try to destroy you. Like that was who Nixon was. <laughs> that's how he's portrayed. At least, and I think yeah. you know, there's there's uh, I think there's more than a a kernel of truth to that with regard to Nixon. Yeah, although, I mean, I, you know, I have to go back and go through it in some detail. Uh, a lot of times his aides would ignore these fulminations because they realized, no, you can't be auditing their taxes. I mean, paranoid. Kennedy did he that. A and, well, there's that. And, uh, well, you know, there's, uh, you know, my response is the old famous line, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. <laughs> um, uh, that was, you know, contentious in the beginning. But, you know, Franklin Roosevelt, I think, audited some of the so it's worth you know adding one dimension. You go back to the 30s, you had a lot of newspapers that were still pretty openly partisan in a lot of ways, like the Chicago Tribune, uh, which is very Republican and very isolationist, uh, even into the early months of World War II. And I don't remember specific details, but I think Roosevelt tried to harass uh, the owner, Colonel Robert McCormick, by auditing him through the IRS. And so harassment of the media, you know, we should not be shocked. Um, right. uh, and we shouldn't stand for it either. Well, that's right. Uh, I think we should be realistic. But I, I think uh, one thing, I won't say it's much in favor of Trump, is that at least he does what he does openly. <laughs> and, uh, and look, I mean, uh, I, so I will go back to that point, which is um, if, if you just go back four months ago before the world came to an end from the virus crisis, uh, any president that has three and a half percent unemployment, uh, no significant foreign policy crisis going on, um, uh, a decent economic growth ought to be cruising to an easy reelection, and yet he was still underwater. And why is that? Well, it's because he's such an abrasive person. And you know the is way he's insecurity. Uh, what is abrasive? Is it? Is it? Is it just fundamentally he's insecure? So you know that's an interesting question. Uh, it's hard for me to imagine that he's insecure in the ordinary sense uh, of when we think of an insecure person who's you know usually you know, skittish, afraid of their own shadow, shy usually, right? Uh, he wouldn't have done what he's done in life, uh, uh, you know, if he was an insecure person. Uh, so, on the other hand, I guess you have to credit the view that he's got such an outsized ego uh, and does not take criticism well, uh, and at has this all, instinct to fight all. back. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and 
so it's not insecurity. I think it's it's outsized ego and uh, narcissism is the word that people use. But uh, I had to think about this a long time because I think almost all presidents are narcissists to one extent or another. It's whether it's sort of malignant and you know their people's opinions on Trump run pretty strong, <laughs> of course. And on the uh, on the 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 Democratic side. What what presidents would you credit? Because I you know I know you're a conservative, you know I'm a Democrat. What what Democratic presidents would you give credit to for their handling of the media? You mentioned Lyndon Johnson. I mean Lyndon yeah, Johnson well, would strong arm anyone. Right, right, yeah. The media didn't really like him very much. Uh, John F. Kennedy, of course, comes to mind as the most skillful. Right, he. Um, for one thing, they liked him, so he had some of their sympathy, and he used to you know have drinks with Ben Bradley at the Post and confide right, lots of things right. that. You know, he probably should never that Bradley should have then turned reporters loose on. Uh, but he was also very skillful in his press conferences. Um, I think then the other person who I think was really good at handling the media was Bill Clinton. The master. That's not to say he – The big guy. Well, that's right. That's not to say that he got on well with them. Uh, he was very angry at the media even early in, in his term before his uh, whole impeachment and the Monica Linsky thing came along. Um, I, I mean, generally it's true that the media – I tend to think they tend to be too much of a herd mentality, but they are adversarial in their disposition. And so, you know, they would ask tough questions of Clinton and they would make him mad. And it took him a while. He just understood every situation that he was in. I think that's what it was. He understood what people were after, what they were going for, how much people really wanted to know, what to say and what not to say. Right. Well, I do remember one press conference in particular that was absolutely astounding in how good he was in the ordinary sense of being skillful. And it was in early 1997 or maybe middle of the year. I'm not sure. And there had been all kinds of really scandalous behavior in the 96 campaign involving – this will sound oddly familiar in a certain way – a lot of Chinese money raised almost surely illegally from very dubious people. uh, And – Clinton agreed to have uh, you know an old-fashioned East Room stand-up press conference. I'll bet you can find us on YouTube if you look for it. I, 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 I would imagine it's there somewhere. And you know the media thought, oh, we really got him this time. And <laughs> he got up, and I watched this thing with my jaw kept dropping <laughs> to the floor because partly it was Slick Willie at his best, but he was also very effective in giving answers and parrying all of the – you know, very damaging questions and problems and without ever lashing out at anybody, without, you know, without behaving any of the way that Trump or Nixon would have, right? Uh, and, and, you know, he, he almost couldn't, he had to almost suppress a grin at points because right, you yeah. could tell that he knew he was running yeah, circles yeah. around the press. And it was a very, because he was really good at that, right? It was a very impressive performance. Absolutely. Um, Trump should take notes. Not that he ever would, I don't think. I don't know no. that he's ever taken a note a day in his life. Um but uh, what do you I mean going going forward? What do you think? You know, given everything that we've discussed, given the the state of play, what can we as citizens do to support, defend, protect freedom of the press against any and all threats, any and all abuses, any and all incursions? Yeah, you know, I think the biggest threat to a free press these days is not, you know, Trump uh, trying to attack them or, or you know, we haven't talked about forms of censorship like, you know, Facebook and Twitter and so forth, which are you know, complicated matters. But uh, I think the biggest problem the press has these days is apathy. 
um, you know, which is related to the low regard that people have for the media, but it, you know, it's apathy and, Gosh, there's a lot of talk right now, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to see it proposed uh, as a you know something Democrats might want if they sweep the elections in November. Uh, is um, you know so many media organizations are failing. You know newspapers are dying. Uh, I think um, a lot of people laid off from the media in the last couple months. Their jobs are not going to come back. Uh, advertising is plummeting, you know, uh, already, and it's uh, plummeting further. Um, and so I don't know. I mean, this sounds kind of sentimental. Uh, when people ask me, what can I do to help improve the environment? I usually say buy a new car. And what I mean by that is new cars have better technology and emit less pollution. You know, even gasoline powered cars. I don't mean even a Tesla. And so a newspaper would be, you know what, subscribe to your local paper. You know, if you don't, you're unpaid. And I don't, not literally unpatriotic, but, you know, subscribe to your local paper. And when it makes you mad, write a letter. Do the old fashioned way. Write a letter to the editor and put a stamp <laughs> on it. I mean, I guess people send them in online now. I think <laughs> right. we could do that. But, Comment um, below in 250 words or less. <laughs> well, there's that, right. Uh, but, you know, those things just become free-for-alls, and I don't know how often editors read them. But you know what? If you're an editor and you get – an editor is a little bit like a, a member of the House of Representatives. If you get someone who took the time to send you a letter – and not just scribbled. I mean, you know, you should type it out or something and, and send it to your editor. They usually pay attention to that. Uh, because usually the rule of thumb is if you have one reader writing in saying X, there are probably at least 10 who think something like it uh, or who also are you know paying attention to the story or whatever the paper's doing. Um, so, you know, that, that's not a world-beating answer. But, but it's, subscribe. You know, that's what, yes. Yeah. Subscribe. Yeah. And um, yes, I, I'd only add uh, support journalists who are doing great work. So, I mean, we, you know, social media can be used for positive purposes. And, and I, you know, personally, I think, you know, when the president says the, the press is the enemy of the people, it should be resoundingly rejected. I mean, it's, we should, we should reject that characterization. Uh, cause it, I mean, it, I think it's harmful. He has a, well, I yeah, mean, the, I mean, his bully pulpit is powerful His following is extremely large. It's the president of the United States. So I think we should resist that. And I think subscribing, I think, those supporting journalists who are doing good work is important. Yeah, he uh, he would be more effective if instead he took um, – Reagan didn't quite say it this way, but instead he would be more effective if he said, not that you're the enemy of the people, but you're a bunch of clowns. <laughs> you know, make fun of them. That would be more effective for him, I think. Um, you, you know, Reagan – there's a great story about Reagan at one of those media dinners that they have in Washington that Trump doesn't go to, Right. Uh, I don't know if it's the White House Correspondents' Dinner or the Gridiron, or there's a couple of them every year. And somebody said, uh, "Oh, because you know uh, uh, Reagan watched the evening news. He also watched the Sunday morning public affairs shows. He never mentioned that he did that. This is all in his diary. You learn about this. Uh, and you know, he'd say who did a good job, who did a bad job, and so forth. But in one of these dinners, he's up at the podium, and the the MC is talking with him, and saying something like, uh, oh, I, I hear you do the crossword puzzle during the commercials, during the evening news. A and I forget exactly how I put it. It's much funnier than this. But Reagan says, no, it's just backwards. I do the, the, uh, I do the crossword puzzle during the news and watch the commercials. <laughs> and it, with a big grin on his face, right? That was his way of showing that, you know. He was tactful. He uh, was a, a masterful right. communicator. Well, that was his way of showing a little contempt for the media without being nasty about it, right? Everybody laughed, right? And uh, and, and it kind of fit with the stereotype of him, right? Uh, and so he played the type a little bit. 
And but that was another way of him, you know, not giving them the satisfaction. Right. No. Yeah. And yeah. Trump. Uh, Trump doesn't have much art about this. I mean, I you know, I find him fascinating myself. Um, and uh, I'm going to puzzle over him for a very long time. Um, <laughs> I do that with every president until years pass and you learn, you know, the stuff you don't see. What's unseen in every presidency is all when it's happening in front of you is always very, very large. Um, and so it's not so much later we learn things about Truman and Eisenhower and later Reagan and so forth. Um, and and I, uh, you know we're, we're learning things right now about Obama we're not sure about right. <laughs> um, so I guess uh, so yeah. My I guess my my last question would be: You are Steve Hayward. You are you are for a day. You could pick CBS, CNN. T- take your pick among mainstream media, not not Fox. Um, Let's say a, a station that is that is characterized as being more favorable to the left. You are in the briefing room, and you get one question, one question for the president of the United States, and you are thinking in terms of, "I'm a strong, effective reporter." What would you ask him? Oh, so I have to think about that. I think I'd. Uh... I have a hard time giving you just one, but I think it's some related <laughs> ones, which is I'd, I'd want to oh, – here's what I might ask him. Um, I, I, actually, I will try this. I'll try and make this up on the fly. Mr. President, wh- why is it that there's, you seem to have a pattern of saying flattering things about authoritarian and dictatorial leaders like uh, you know Kim Jong-un, like Vladimir Putin, like uh, the guy running Turkey, I think he's complimented. Um, why is it you can never say anything critical about these people? Uh, because as you know, Mr. President, people draw an adverse uh, inference or comparison that you like them because your personality is similar. To that would set Trump into orbit, right? But, uh, I think I'd like to hear some specifics on China. Um, your fake maybe news. Okay, so. your fake news. Right. Okay, you don't have anything. <laughs> right. Don't talk to me. Don't talk to me. Right. right. But it's you know next it's, question. Um, next question. Yeah. No, right. that's, yeah, I think that's a good one. That's a good one. Um, Steve, this has been a lot of fun. Yeah, it has, Zach. Let's keep in touch and keep going with all this. Absolutely, definitely. Because because I'm I'm a big fan of what you did at Williams, and uh, I'm looking so. forward to your, your your next chapters in your career. So thank you very much, Steve. I appreciate it. Right. I hope that that is just the first of a number of conversations I'll have with Zach going forward about uh, his interests and what's going on in the wider world. We wish him luck. Do, by the way, uh, read his piece linked in the show notes about the trouble he got into at Williams College. It's really quite chilling. Uh, But of course, entirely too typical of too many of our elite institutions these days. I don't have anything to add. I mean, you heard from me an awful lot there. Uh, Let's get out today with I Got the News from Steely Dan, which seems like appropriate exit music. And don't forget to milk the soft power dividend. Talk to everybody in a few days. Bye-bye. Can't you see a love will grow?
Ricochet. Join the conversation.